Christchurch, New Malden, 15th of September 2019, 9.30 service. Katie Lofman speaking in the series, Jesus Shows God's Covenant Love, Slow to Anger. God's people. And he repeats that promise time and time again in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. You be my people and I will be your God. And this is the kind of God I'll be, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and quick to forgive. The New Testament continues that theme with a new covenant. But this time, rather than just the Jews, God opens up that covenant to everyone, including us. He can be our God too, and we can be his people, and, we, and he will empower us to live accordingly. We don't have to go to a temple to talk to him or meet with him. We can meet him and talk to him in our hearts through prayer, and through the Holy Spirit living in us. And Jesus is the supreme example of how this works. God and humanity met perfectly in his own body. He was both God and man. In his one human body, he united 100% God and 100% human into one person. And he demonstrated not only that God would be with his people and be their God, but that God would be one with his people and empower them from the inside, from within. And not only that, but this is open to everyone, not just the Jews. Anyone can become one of God's people. And our side of the covenant is that we're asked to love other people, just as God loves us. That's how we be his people. That's the new covenant brought about by Jesus. So Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by uniting God and humanity in his own body and he made a new covenant by opening that up, that opportunity to the whole world by his death on the cross. And at the same time, he gave us a perfect demonstration of love in action. So if Jesus is God and he's fulfilling the Old Covenant, then we should be able to see the same characteristics that we know of God showing themselves in Jesus. And that's what we're looking at in our sermon series in September. So the last couple of weeks, Tim talked about uh, how Jesus showed compassion, and Stephen last week talked about God being gracious and how Jesus demonstrated that in his own life. And this week, we're looking to see whether Jesus really was slow to anger. Imagine if you were with Jesus on a journey to Jerusalem. It's a long way. The walk would take several days. The shortest route takes you through Samaria. But the trouble with that is that the Samaritans resent the Jews. And if they know that you're on your way to a Jewish festival in Jerusalem, then they particularly resent it. So, but you've got to stay somewhere, right? This is a long journey. So a couple of disciples go ahead to the next village to find a and b But mysteriously, there's no room. They're not welcome. Remember, in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is really important. So this is an explicit snub. It's really offensive. When the other disciples hear this, it's not surprising that some of them get angry. And James and John particularly, they want to take revenge. They ask Jesus if they can call down fire from heaven to strike the village and incinerate it. 
Well, that's a bit extreme. Why would they think that was okay? I think it shows that John, James and John were restricted by their view of the old covenant. They knew that the Jews were God's people. So anyone who goes against them is by extension going against God and therefore God should punish them. So although their actions are not very Christian, it does show their faith in Jesus as God. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't let James and John go through with this, and uh, he even has a bit of a go at them. So they keep going, and they find somewhere else, another village. And that's just what Jesus had advised his 12 disciples to do just in the previous chapter, when he sent them on their first solo mission in that um, Luke chapter 9, verse 5. He says, If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town as a testimony against them. That's all you need, not thunderbolts from heaven. So there was this old enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans worshipped God, but to the Jews, their religion was heretical and inferior. So the Jews looked down on them. So this episode is kind of what you might expect, withholding hospitality, offence taken, a threat of revenge. What you wouldn't expect is for a Samaritan to go out of his way to help a Jew. And that's what happens in the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who showed love to his neighbour, Jesus asks the teacher of the law, who was listening? The Samaritan, of course. I wonder what James and John thought when they heard that story. Mm, not what we've seen, maybe. But the parable also implies that the Samaritan will inherit eternal life because that's what the conversation was about in the first place. Not by keeping the letter of the law, but by channeling God's love and compassion to rescue a vulnerable person in need. To the Jews, that was quite shocking. He's a Samaritan after all, eternal life. But that's just the point of the new covenant. It's not just for Jews. It's for everyone, and that includes Samaritans. And we see later that it doesn't stop at Samaritans. Amazingly, it's for all Gentiles. And of course, that includes us. So that's why Jesus doesn't get angry with the Samaritan village, because his mission was ultimately to reach out to them, to draw them into a relationship with God, to fill them with miraculous living water, just like he told the Samaritan woman at the well just as God filled the Israelites with miraculous water from a rock in the desert. But of course, there were times when Jesus did get angry. The most famous time was near the end of his ministry, when he went to the temple and he was appalled by people changing currencies at exorbitant rates and selling doves for unfair prices and generally ripping off the ordinary people. And when he saw what was going on, he pushed over the tables and he drove everyone out with a whip. He was furious. But still, he wasn't hot-tempered. This had been going on for years and Jesus had seen it all his life. But the time came when he showed himself explicitly as the Messiah. He rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with all the crowds cheering him right up to the temple. And that was when he decided to do something about it. So what got him so angry just then? 
I think it was the injustice. What was happening was that the very leaders who were supposed to lead people to God were instead putting up obstacles to God. The chief priests and the religious teachers, they insisted that people use special currency to pay to the temple when they gave their donations and paid their taxes. And they made them buy approved sacrifices and no doubt all sorts of other things too. And they were neglecting their God-given responsibility and instead they were abusing their position of authority. They were taking advantage of people's devotion so that God's house of prayer became, as Jesus put it, a den of thieves. This is very serious. Power is a privilege and it builds trust. When that privilege is used to abuse trust, it's particularly abhorrent. We've seen all different examples of that and um, Karen even talked about abuse of power within relationships. We, there, and we've seen examples in the news as well of people using their position to abuse people who trust them. The Me Too movement is just one example of that kind of injustice. God may be slow to anger, but he does lose patience eventually. And injustice and abuse of authority is one of the things that really gets God angry. So how does God deal with his anger? Well, in the Old Testament, there were multiple warnings from prophets before a period of judgment or cleansing. And then those periods of judgment were followed by restoration. The old covenant was keep my commands and be my people and I will be your God. But if people don't keep his commands, then in what sense are they still his people? God is consistently reaching out to people and giving second chances. But if people don't respond to his love, then the relationship's broken and there are consequences. And the same goes for us. If we don't listen to God, if we reject him and all his values and refuse to have him as our God, then how can he be our God? But he doesn't go away. At any time, we can turn to him. He's only one prayer away, so close. And God never stops reaching out. After that incident in the temple, Jesus told a story which brings home God's patience and his vulnerability. And the story he told was about a landowner who let out his vineyard. At harvest time, he sent his servant to collect his share of the crop, but the, the tenants wouldn't pay. They beat up the first servant, so the landlord sent a second servant and then a third, but all were beaten up and no dues were paid. So the landlord said, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But no, when the son arrived, far from respecting him, the tenants actually killed him. So Jesus says, what will the landowner do? And Jesus looked straight at the, the chief priests and the religious teachers and he says, he will go to the vineyard and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the religious leaders knew that they were the tenants in that story. God is the landowner. 
and they haven't fulfilled their responsibility to God. Now Jesus is telling them that God has sent his son and here they are now pl plotting to kill him. And we know, of course, that that's what's happened. Jesus was killed. God made himself vulnerable. It's odd to think of God, the creator of the universe, being vulnerable. But that's what he chose to do. That's how he confronts injustice. A tiny baby who becomes a refugee. An ordinary working man in a land under enemy occupation. An itinerant teacher identifying himself with those on the margins, including Samaritans and beggars. And a condemned prisoner, a man dying on a cross. Not exactly an image of power and strength. It's a bit different from a bolt of lightning from heaven, isn't it? But God is love, and one aspect of love is justice. And this vulnerability shows that he's always on the side of the oppressed, working for the righting of wrongs through his love. There are different kinds of justice. There is uh, one type of justice, we could call it legal justice. There's no favoritism. Everybody is the same under the law. That's a kind of justice. Uh, retribution is another kind of justice. You harm me, and I will see that you're harmed in return. Bolts from heaven called down on unwelcoming villages. But the Bible takes a slightly different view of justice. Prophetic justice. This means a concern for people who are disadvantaged or oppressed. Compassion for those who are weak and, and those who are marginalized in society. And that's what God's justice is, a way of putting things right and redressing the balance and ultimately removing the source of injustice altogether, doing away with the inherent injustices of a situation, redeeming it. And that's what Jesus says that God will do when his kingdom fully comes on earth. Injustice will be put right. The fallen world that we live in will be redeemed and renewed, and his people will be united as one. That will be the fulfillment of his covenant. And that's why that kind of justice is prophetic, because it demonstrates the reality of God's justice, and it gives a glimpse of that future kingdom. And that's what Jesus was doing when he turned the traders out of the temple. He was calling the authorities to account for abusing their power using it to oppress people. He was putting right that imbalance. Under Jesus's justice, outcasts like Samaritans are included and loved just as much as Jews. Women are given equal status. Prostitutes, tax collectors, beggars have their life turned round. They find a new dignity. This is God's new covenant. His love, his slow to anger compassion, open to all as he rules the world with true justice. And we, as his people, we keep our side of the covenant by living that out too. In this country, the press tries to hold the authorities to account, but that's the church's responsibility as well. We are called to practice that prophetic justice in three ways. Giving back dignity 
to those who are downtrodden. And we heard brilliant examples of that this morning from the video and from Karen. Naming and shaming those who cause them to be downtrodden in the first place, holding unjust authorities to account, and working to dismantle structural inequalities wherever we find them. And all these will bring renewal to people's lives. So my prayer is that we as individuals and together as a church can find more ways to do each of these things in small ways on a daily basis and in bigger ways by working with charities that are already campaigning, not acting out of... So when we do this, we don't, we don't want to do it acting out of power, but acting out of vulnerability. And that's how we personally can respond to the covenant, by helping the world to become what God intends it to be. And when we do that, we're living a prophetic life.